0: Hi there, and welcome to episode 64 of the T21 Mom Podcast. I'm Mary, and I'll be your host. Each episode, we'll talk about life, Down syndrome, single parenting, mamahood, and pretty much everything in between. I have a daughter named Ainsley, and she's eight years old and rocking an extra chromosome, also known as Down syndrome, and I am living life my way. And like always, my friend and co-host, Ron, is also here with me today. Hey, Ron.
1: Hey, Mary, haven't run away yet.
0: Not yet. (laughs) We're very glad about that. (laughs) How are you
1: doing? How's Dainsley doing?
0: We're doing great. We're a few weeks into school now and kind of getting settled in. So it's good.
1: Good. Yeah. Good. So, uh, And you're getting settled in and everything's good. And Mm -hmm. yeah, good. Um, Today we have a subject that is near and dear to my black heart, which is (laughs) inclusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm and who are we talking to about this
0: we're talking to sarah joe and she is an inclusion specialist it's something that she is very passionate about and she's even working on her phd all around inclusion
1: and and what does an inclusion specialist do
0: well i'm sure sarah joe can explain that much better than me but you know they advocate, they can be your advocate, you know, they can assist teachers, you know, just how it's going to work for you. Like so, gives you other things to think about that maybe you hadn't even thought about, you know, and in our last episode where, uh, we talked to Amanda Caffrey about her daughter, Rosie, Sarah Jo was Rosie's advocate. And, you know, I think she played a big part in, you know, getting Rosie. Ride the bus. Okay.
1: Well, let's go have Sarah Joe explain this to us.
0: Yes, let's go. Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I'm talking to Sarah Jo Soldovieri. Hope hope I said that right. Yes, you did. (laughs) Thank you. Sarah Joe is a trained grades one to twelve inclusive educator who is also working on her PhD, very impressive, in inclusive special education. Welcome, Sarah Jo. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad that you're able to join us today. You're obviously, I'm sure, quite busy working on your PhD. And you also told me before we started that you're teaching at the university. So you're obviously very busy. So I appreciate you taking some time out and and talking with us today. But can you tell us a little bit about you and how you became so passionate about inclusive ed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my background with inclusive ed is a little different than other folks. I actually went through a inclusive school growing up, so my best friend happens to have Down syndrome, and so we, you know, were included sort of overnight, uh, unbeknownst to me. Uh, Dr. Julie Carlson came out to our school and like helped behind the scenes, and I, I had no idea until I was actually sitting in her class years later at Syracuse University that you know she was so instrumental in that. And so seeing Kathy, you know, my best friend with Down syndrome alongside us, seeing our other friends with disabilities, it just became our normal. And when we moved to high school, the way I'm I'm from kind of a rural area, they do it is that different middle elementary middle schools come together to make a larger high school pooling resources and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, she went from fully included to completely segregated and not even able to be having lunch with us. And they would have, you know, those quote unquote, life skill kids pass in the hallway before everyone else. So You know, it was interesting the first few days of my high school that we were all kind of texting each other, anyone seen Kathy, anyone have lunch with her, choir, band, you know, nothing. And so I was sort of a big mouth even then. And so I went (laughs) and and knocked on the door because it was locked from the outside and Mm -hmm. said, you know, can Kathy eat lunch with us? Or, you know, Kathy took French with us in middle school. Can she be in my French one class? No, no, no. And, And I kind of went back and forth with this educator for a little bit and he said to me you know you're not really her friend and from that day I decided that I was going to dismantle segregated education and I didn't know anything right like (laughs) I I just knew that I saw my friend who had slept over at my house many many times who who had spent lots of times with fade into a person I hardly knew lose her speech ability um and then I, I was lucky enough to be able to attend syracuse university in my undergrad and found out wow there's this whole realm of inclusionists out there that this isn't just kathy's experience wasn't the wasn't the exception it's the rule when we include kids everyone does better mm-hmm. when we segregate them we diminish skills we have almost no chance at employment um, and so since then i've just been on this journey to make sure that nobody else experiences you know, what, what I've seen so many folks at my high school experience, which was complete segregation and that is that they set them up for nothing except for complete segregation in, in after K-12 education.
0: Wow. And Ron, who's my co-host, and we've talked on previous episodes how, you know, and obviously the T21 mom podcast is primarily about Down syndrome and how, I mean, obviously we're older than you, but we never saw kids with down syndrome in our school or even that many with any kind of different abilities. Like I remember someone, I think he had cerebral palsy, but he was, he could still walk. Not great, but you know, he wasn't in a wheelchair, but, and we, we never saw anyone like that.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And that is sad
2: it is and you know i never set out to become a professor that was (laughs) never my goal until i started hearing teachers around the country say things that you know made my heart hurt and my head hurt that you know we've never educated a student with down syndrome or this is the way we've always done it so we're going to keep segregating those students now of course they would never say segregate And I thought, you know, this is more than just having to advocate alongside parents. We have to advocate and train teachers to understand that this is the only way to educate kids. This is no longer an option. Um, Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until then, you know, that this never, you would have asked me years ago, I would have been in the classroom still, like happily doing my little Pinterest board and, you know, having a cute bulletin board in a themed classroom, right? Yeah. Um, But now, you know, there's so much more work to be done in making sure our educators are are prepared.
0: Yes. And, you know, parents like myself, we thank you for doing this, because as I'm sure, you know, advocating, it's hard work. It's tiring. You know, we have so much so many other things that we have to do and so many plates in the air Mm -hmm. at one time. You know, it's it's hard and sometimes it ends up being like way down on the list. And, mm-hmm. you know, parents are exhausted. And it just feels like it's one more thing to do. But Absolutely. it's, but it's so important. Like, it's so it's, important for our kids. It's
2: so important. That's what I, I talk to families all the time about. I know this is hard. I know this is an uphill battle. But, you know, you either pay now or you pay later. And the pain later is going to be detrimental beyond belief but Mm -hmm. you're right this is not it's not fair to families and we look at the intersection of who has the most privilege to hire an advocate to attend conferences you know to spend time doing these and you know how are we even further disenfranchising folks so you know i am grateful for those parents and advocates and scholars who have come before me and whose work i'm going to continue you know this i'm not i'm not by any means starting this. You know, I'm just able to pick off where other folks have left off. And I, I feel a great privilege and honor to be able to pick up where the
0: greats have left off. Oh, that's amazing. Well, like I said, we appreciate it very much so. So back in the summer, you held a Zoom meeting that a couple other um T21 moms invited me to. And, you know, it was very obvious about your passion about inclusive education. I thought, you know. I mean, we've already been discussing it. It would be great to have you on as it's the start of school, you know, IEPs will be coming up in short order. Most of us really dread that, you know, it's a challenging time, you know, especially coming off of COVID, you know, it turns out that Ainsley has the same teacher, which isn't a bad thing. So, um, you know, and I'm excited to see how this year is going to pan out. Like last Mm -hmm. year was challenging, obviously. but. You know, first I want to ask you, like, what exactly is inclusive education? I, I'm sure that's kind of a loaded question, but I'm sure for lots of people, it, it probably means different things.
2: Absolutely, and thank you for this question because I always always forget people aren't in my head and can't operationalize the things the way I do. Or, you know, and there's a lot of different definitions of inclusive education. And and for me, it's every child is educated. In their age-appropriate classroom with the supports and services they need to be successful and this yes i focus on down syndrome because that's where my passion is but it goes so far beyond down syndrome it's about lgbt students it's about culturally sustaining practices it's about ensuring that we're not furthering ableism homophobia white supremacy in our classrooms when we include students You know, I'm not just talking about physically being there. I'm talking about honoring and sustaining their culture, their language, who they are. Um, And even looking at things like for quote unquote behavior services, we're not looking for compliance, right? We're looking for to give students the tangible skills to be successful. So it's it's taking a disability led perspective. It's taking, you know, it's centering the voices of those who were most affecting. And, and that's that's who we teach to all in the same place, regardless of their skill level. And we give them the supports that they need. So that is my long, very long-winded <laughs> definition of inclusive education. But I had to put it like on a post-it note, it's everybody is included in general education, regardless of
0: anything. I love it. No, that's, yeah, no, I mean, in a nutshell, exactly. And, you know, I just see so many Challenges out there, and even what I've had to deal with at Ainsley School, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. about uh, a little bit later. You know, because when Ainsley first entered into kindergarten, and Ainsley is my only child, so I've never had experience with other children. Yes, I have nieces and nephews, but I'm not the one taking them to school. You know, I met with her teacher, who was lovely, and she told me she had never taught a child with down syndrome before. And I said, well, you know, I never had a child with down syndrome before. (laughs) And, you know, because like you just, sometimes you just learn as you go, but it's all new to us. But what are some of the obstacles to inclusive education? Because, you know, here she's probably thinking, what am I going to do? I mean, we have what's called a resource teacher at our school. And I don't know how it's, what it's like in different provinces or in the States and stuff, but. You know, I don't really know what kind of support that mm-hmm. she would get in the school. So, like, what are some of those obstacles to including our kids? I mean, I'm a,
2: I am believe that the biggest obstacles is just twofold. One, it's our mindset. It's that especially around students with Down syndrome that we see, and I'm using we as in most of society, see Down syndrome and think not capable. Think you know, what will they learn anyway? And then it's this mm. its this notion that we're sort of always looking for what are they doing wrong instead of looking at where progress is. So, you know, it's, it's twofold. It's that we look at Down syndrome and we think not capable. And then mm-hmm. instead of looking at ways of where can we show success, where can we access, we're always looking at, but they can't do this. So I have this conversation a lot with teachers on, I, I hear them say well their reading is much higher than their comprehension level and i like to say let's take take a step back do you actually know that because with down syndrome we may have some expressive language delays so how are you making up for that expressive language delays and giving options giving multiple choices so we're not having to generate novel novel words which may impede what may impede what they're what, what they're trying to say and, I, and show you that they actually think less um, or know less than. So it's, it's, we're not looking, it's almost as if we're looking through this lens of, well, they can't, and I'm going to find every piece of evidence to show that they can't, as opposed to they can. Um, I was, you know, in my class, you know, I'm not, uh, Dr. Christy Ashby's class, we were reading this um, part of Chris Cleaver's book, Educating Children with Down Syndrome, and used the example of a student who, They didn't think she could read, so they never taught her to read. And, you know, they were shocked when they put her in any sort of reading instruction that she picked up on it. Mm -hmm. Well, if we never expose students to things, we're never going to see what they know. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be perfect or easy all the time, but I just wish we could flip our lens as educators and as society, as instead of saying, where are they different? How can I make it so they can show me what they know? And that's all students. I think there's a bigger gap and it's more available and more pressing for students with Down syndrome, but this goes again, far beyond, you know, if we had this, we would see more success in all students.
0: You know, that is so true. And I'll tell you a story, a little story, which we were going to talk about later, but this past year, Ainsley's EA who'd been with her since kindergarten so she was in grade three last year she texted me and said you know I need to tell you something You, you probably already know it and I said I don't know anything and she goes I'm shaking and she told me that she just sent me a picture and it was a list of all these words that Ainsley spelled and no, but I didn't know that she could spell. We'd been working on reading flashcards and we take Uh reading at our, uh, the DSRF, the Down Center Resource Foundation, (laughs) but she was spelling words that we don't practice, you know? And like you just said, like, she doesn't have a lot of the expressive speech, but when I talk to her, like, you know, and I tell her to do something or whatever she understands, I don't need to tell her it five times, she understands the first time. And she then, she also showed me that Ainsley was able to do simple math. And she said, I don't know where she learned this because the only time that she has ever been exposed to it was in kindergarten at circle time. And I'm thinking, so what was happening during all the other times that the kids were learning math? They were obviously Mm -hmm. pulling her out for whatever. And, you know, but... And, and I hadn't really, you know, I had not practiced it at home because that was not something really on my agenda. I wanted her to learn to count, you know, to understand a little bit of concept of numbers, but, you know, adding and subtracting, and, and apparently she can even do a little bit of multiplication was not even on my radar. Like it was way down the line, right? Yeah. Spelling I was hopeful reading. I'm very hopeful that she, you know, will become a fluent reader, but that just goes to show, you know, Include them, and you know, you just might see what they actually know. Don't yeah. assume,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Right? And there's this thing, and I, this is when I training teachers, I say this for students, students sometimes they just need to like steepen it a little bit. They may not show it to you in kindergarten, but it's steeping there, it's coming. You can never just assume that they don't know it or they're not taking it. And I hear all the time from educators and administrators, well, what are they going to get out of this anyway? Well, they're going to get exactly what everyone else is. Now, are they going to be able to express it to you in the same way? Maybe, maybe not. But it's at least setting the foundation there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, beautifully said. You know, setting the foundation. Let's include them. You know, and let it steep. I love that. It's like <laughs> a nice cup of tea, right? Just let it steep yeah. for a while. You know, to enjoy it later. And so, but how do we? Well, it's not really for the parents but how do we train teachers like what is the expectations of teachers when they have like a class of 18 or more students I think here the, I can't remember I think the class size is up to 22 elsewhere I'm sure it's bigger some people will be in smaller classes you know and obviously like in Ainsley's kindergarten teacher who had never had a student with Down Centre before she was young I don't know how long she'd been a teacher for probably just maybe five years maybe you know but how do we get them to be able to teach our kids? They're not going to know that necessarily give lots of choices, you know, like you say, multiple choice or, you know, and, and be patient, you know, because of the auditory processing. They're not necessarily going to know that or understand that. And I mean, a parent, you can educate to a certain point, but, you know, it's like telling someone how to do their job. And most people don't really appreciate that.
2: Yeah, oh, well, that is uh, yeah, such a complicated question that I think has many different different facets to solving. I, I will first say that, wow, I wish 1822 was the norm. Here it's much, much higher. I think the first thing we can do is stop even giving the option of removing students. So even when we say I'm going to do everything to include the student, when there is that option for a segregated placement or segregated pull up, in my mind, that's always there. So I want us to say that is not even an option. Then we need to look at teacher prep programs and professional development. What are they focusing on? Now I have a, a big kind of stink with teacher prep programs in the US and Canada, and that we don't focus on Down syndrome at all. And we don't focus on inclusion. And you know, there are very few universities in the US, at least, who who teach inclusion and teach it well. And we're doing a great disservice to our teachers. To not prepare them. But I will also say that these are things that, if we kind of let go of the label Down syndrome, are things that we would want to give every student when we look at concepts of universal design for learning. These are giving choices, giving wait time. Yes, some are unique to Down syndrome, but We need to really let go of some of the scripted curriculum that says students can only show what they know in a three paragraph essay or in a response exactly like this and to look back at what is the true objective of my lesson. Is it that I want students to spell words or is it that I want students to physically write and if it's not physically right, how can I adapt this so that a student can still show me that concept and that can be set all the way through through high school and beyond. So stopping and thinking about what is the true objective of my lesson? What do I want students to at the base get out of this? And often that's going back to the standards or going back to you know the key concepts from the curriculum. And then seeing what works. I mean, even students with Down syndrome, right? we have kind of a general list of things. Whenever I go in and consult with schools, I'm like, this is my like kind of tried and true, but that doesn't mean it's always gonna work. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to give permission for both the students to fail and our teachers to fail without penalty or, or forced segregation because of that failure.
0: Yeah, I, I like that. I, I agree because like every kid is going to learn differently and, you know, and sometimes I think we almost set the kids up to fail so that we can pull them out or that we can segregate them. And I mean, I know Ainsley gets pulled out for like speech and OT at the school and stuff. And to be honest, I don't know how great it is because we do all of that privately anyways through the DSRF. Uh, you know, but I figure the more speech, the better, the more OT, the better, you know, it might only be 20 minutes. I'm not sure. And she, they also have it's called room eight at her school, which is kind of like the special needs for lack of a better word. I don't even know what is the appropriate word these days. It <laughs> changes all the time, but like, it's a room, like, it's kind of like more of a sensory room. Cause you know, she needs, cause she also has a dual diagnosis of autism, but she is somewhat verbal, you know, <laughs> like she's eight and she can certainly make her needs known but they often pull her, her out you know if she needs a break to this room with uh, you know different sensory things like what, what are sort of your thoughts on that I've had I've read different things and heard different things some people are against it but you know she does better when she knows she's going to get a break and she needs that I, bit of a break
2: I I think you know we have to be you know I will first take a step back and say, you know, I I look to the autistic community to take the lead and say like, what are autistic adults and kids to say, what are, what are our needs? And overwhelmingly, what I've heard is that this helps us, that this, so helps having a sensory, getting that input if needed, or, or, you know, having a place to decompress is helpful. So I, I think that's okay, right? Where I think we do a disservice to kids is trying to fade any of those supports out trying to say like this year we're going to try for you know 35 minutes instead of 30 before a break whereas Mm. this is a this is a natural part of human existence now we wouldn't question having ramps for people with wheelchairs all in all the places if that's what was needed or a lift so i something like sensory should be seen as no different than a wheelchair ramp or a student with diabetes who needs to go give insulin. These are just things that are going to help us be better students. Um, But I'm also not a believer in um, things like whole body listening, for instance. I think we should look at, you know, what are student-centered approaches that are not going to force compliance or force a way of being that is inherently May inherently be unnatural with some students, particularly autistic students and our students who have dual diagnoses of Down syndrome and autism.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that, and yeah, and it, it's it's tricky, it's challenging, you know. And I'm not there obviously during the day, so I can't really see exactly what's going on. I'm hoping maybe this year that we might be allowed into the school because I'd like to sort of yeah. just kind of get a sense of what's kind of going on. Mm-hmm in her day and also because she's got a new EA that I don't really like I don't know her Mm -hmm. at all so Mm -hmm. yeah so I just kind of want to see how things are going
2: Uh, absolutely and it is a balancing act of you know especially our kids with down syndrome are going to know how to play the game and are (laughs) going to say like oh can I get out of things and so it is a balance (laughs) of that you know I'm not saying let kids go to the sensory room all day Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I am saying let's teach kids how to say, you know, I need a break or press, I need a break on my communication device, or, you know, what have you. And then we work on it, of, do we really need a break? You know, the, but I think that that is fewer and far in between. I would yeah. rather go to that extreme than have a kid not have access to to their sensory needs.
0: Right. And yes, and Ainsley, it's so funny that you say that because she is a total player and Mm -hmm. she plays people that are new and totally Mm -hmm. takes advantage of that. Every time we have like a new therapist, I always warn them, she will play you. And, you know, I remember one time we were at swim physio and she had a new therapist in the water with her that time. And it sometimes was one on one or sometimes two on one there ended up being five people in the pool with her
1: and uh, and even
0: the lead physio Brenda who never goes in because she knows how to play people and that's yeah. so funny that that you said that I, I always say it should
2: be added to you know the diagnostic criteria for kids with Down syndrome because it is such a pervasive thing I can't tell you how many teachers <laughs> call me for advice and I'm like you it's like they're playing you they are just you know you don't think this kid is smart well guess what they outsmarted you and it's it's making sure if you have a student with down syndrome in in your class in your program that you know short it's not an option you know we are going we are going to pack up now not do you want to pack up right now because do you want to implies that it's a question Mm -hmm. and that means that there is an option when there is no option um but it's hard because we as a society infantilize our students, right? And they're so cute and they are, don't yeah. get me wrong. They are the cutest, but we also can't let them get away with everything.
0: Yes, no I know. I And that's what I always tell them, you know, just because she has Down syndrome, it's not a pass, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't get a pass. Uh, on our last episode, uh, we talked with Amanda Caffrey about Rosie's <laughs> right to ride the bus and you're actually <laughs> Rose's advocate, right? I am. Yes. And in Rosie's case, like as we talked about, the school wanted to segregate her by putting her on a separate bus from her brother and her other neighborhood peers. I mean, she isn't even in the school yet and Amanda's having to already go and, and mm-hmm. fight. What are some other types of segregation that we might find with our kids, like where there's not inclusion? Well...
2: gosh, all, I mean, all over, whether it's even kids who are included in their genetic class, having to enter through a different door, having to sit at a particular lunch table, having a different recess. I mean, segregation is the default in the U S and Canada for kids with Down syndrome and other quote unquote, significant disabilities, like those intellectual disabilities. It is just, it is the, it's the default. It's what folks go to, you know, the bus, the bus is one example. The playground is another sports team are another after school clubs. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really have to fight in so many places for any basic interaction with non-disabled peers. Yeah. And, you
0: know, I mean, our life is pretty busy and but, you know, I would love for Ainsley to join Brownies or Sparks. Like, I don't know what she would really get out of it. But I did that as a child, and I think it would be good for her. But at the same time, I'm going, well, you know, now I got to, like, how is that going to work? I I have to go and be the support person. Like, it's again, it's exhausting. Like, I'd have to be her support for that. And, you know, and again, how are kids going to treat her? Like, for the most part, from what I... Can gather and for what I'm told, the kids are are quite lovely at her school, which I really love to hear. You know, but it's still hard. I see kids stare. You know, I see or even adults. I see. You know, they stare when we're out and about, and 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 it's hard. And you know, on a, a previous episode, we did. Uh, I had a young woman on, uh, named Riley Kate and she does, it's called the trium tribe. And she, she's six, all of 16 years old. And mm-hmm. she started a, a nonprofit that sends out welcome gifts to children with a with down syndrome who've been adopted. So it doesn't oh, it wow. have to be a new baby. It could be whatever age. And it's yeah. so lovely. And she talks about like why she's doing this and why she's involved in the Down Center community. And she goes, it's all because of inclusion. You mm-hmm. know, she, she's actually a gifted student, but she always, there was always a, another child in her class who had like either autism or some other, you know, was differently abled. And she always gravitated towards that. And she herself said, it just shows that inclusion works and that now she's doing these amazing things. And she's 16.
2: Like, Absolutely. 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 I mean, inclusion, yes, it benefits our students with disabilities, but it benefits everyone. I mean, the research is so clear on that. But then we look at, you know, where is that young woman going to go 10 years from now? Is she going to be a business owner who is hiring people with Down syndrome and other disabilities? Or a police officer who may better be able to interact with an autistic man because they could realize, oh, I had a student just like that in my class or my friend. Is autistic and this may be, you know, that or you know, just in any facet of life. I mean, there's no segregated church, there's no segregated grocery store. I mean, the reason adults stare is because they weren't ever exposed when they were in school.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I would push back on the, you know, this is where I'm gonna push back on mom here, is that what would she get out of it? Well, do we ask that about other students? No, like my I, my mom put me in brownies. <clears throat> Did I get a lot out of the rope tying and fire starting and that sort of thing? No, <laughs> you know, no, put me out in the wild by myself. I'm dead, but <laughs> um, you know, if it's, if it's available and, and you know, a logistical issue is different, but you know, she's going to get out of it. What every other kid does community, a mm-hmm. sense of belonging, fun. Um, and maybe she won't like it. You know, I had, I happened to be in Girl Scouts when I graduated high school. That certainly is not everyone. Um, you know, cause I, so I think we, we add this extra lens when we look at our students with disabilities that doesn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, if we have a world that's fully inclusive, starting with our schools, we won't see stares from adults. You know, it is, we'll just keep pushing on you know, to each level. Now we're having universities that are fully inclusive. I mean, Syracuse, I may be biased, but it has the best inclusive higher ed program. I mean, I walk around campus and it almost puts me in tears seeing kids, undergrads with Down syndrome and autism and other intellectual disabilities who are just in with everyone else. You would, you know, maybe they have a support person with them. Maybe they have a mentor, maybe not. Um, I ran into a student of mine. I, ta- I taught a seminar for Inclusive U last year on policy and advocacy. I saw Jacob, and he, you know, was walking around I'm like, "Hey, Jacob, where are you going?" "Oh, I'm going to join Otto's Army, and then the yearbook, and then I have this club." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, you are busy!" And are just so integral to life, and it's not something that people stare at because it's just was it just accepted. And in our little chasm of university, think about if we can do it here, we can do it anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. I know I always love seeing like, you know, cause I'm on so many different Facebook forums. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love seeing all the kids with Down syndrome who are going to college or university. And I think, that's awesome. And I love seeing that and that they obviously, you know, that their parents support that and obviously the school that they're going to supports that. I think it's amazing. You know, I'm hopeful that there'll be those opportunities for Ainsley as well when she's older, you know, if that's what she chooses, you know, I, I want her to have all the choices that she can have in her life, you know, just because she has a dual diagnosis. It doesn't, you know, yes, there are some challenges obviously, but you know, I want her to live her best life, however, however that may look. Absolutely. You know? And you've put a little fire under my my butt to get her signed up for for brownie. So I'm <laughs> okay. I'm gonna definitely look into that. So, yeah, I know you're right. Like and when you were saying I you would die out in the forest. Yeah, I probably would too. You know, <laughs> but <laughs> I enjoyed it and I had those memories and mm-hmm. you know and I think Ainsley could yes, I think she could get that out of that and have fun as well uh so is now she's in grade four and you know quite frankly i'm pretty terrified as the gap is just getting wider and wider between her and her peers so like how can she still be included when with, with her peers when they are just so much farther ahead of her because i'm sure that's a lot what a lot of parents think about and probably what the schools think about too is how are we going to do it? Why do we do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: that's that's a really great question. I would first, I would go back to the story you told earlier of her remembering math that she learned in kindergarten and push back of is the gap growing? Because there's this idea, and I hear it all the time that the gap will just get wider. I don't I don't believe that. That's not what I see with inclusion. When we're able to really look at what is the true purpose of this lesson and we remove the extra barriers, so for instance, if reading is the barrier, we listen to it, we're still able to access that curriculum. You know, it's sitting down and looking at where are my access points for this curriculum. It may not be everything, but there is something that every student can get out of every single lesson. And I I really would encourage everyone to question that notion of a gap. I'm a believer that we build that gap. We, there's this old school way of thinking about education that you have to learn this and then this, and then this, and it builds on each other. Mm-hmm. And in reality, there are very few skills that are quote unquote foundational for our children with Down syndrome that are going to prevent them from learning the next concept. So the two things I ask educators and parents to think about when we're thinking about content is, is this skill built upon? Is it truly built upon incoming content? I use the example of poems, for instance. We don't. How is that built upon? If you're going to become, you know, a great, you know, critic of literature, yes, maybe that is going to be built upon. But you can get that in higher ed and later. And then, is it used in real life? Is the second question? Because the most ironic thing to me about life skill programs is that they don't actually teach real life skills in the 21st century. So, if if the content does not not answer yes to those two questions, then we introduce it. But just like every other student, we give ourselves permission to say, they may not get it. Not every student gets everything 100% of the time. So it's not that it's a checklist we need to go through and say, we have to get this skill, this skill, this skill, and then the checklist keeps adding and adding and adding. Year to year, that is going to be much more similar to their typically developing peers than not. Does does that make sense? I know it's kind of a, it's a very different way of thinking about education.
0: Yes, I I understand what you're saying. And it definitely gives me a lot to ponder and to to think about, you know, because Ainsley's fine motor skills are, are poor. We're still working on like being able to write, you know, but she knows how to manage her iPad like nobody's business, you know. I didn't know you could stream from the iPad, but she certainly figured out how to turn on the TV from the iPad. <laughs> like my boyfriend, Dennis and I are both going, how did she do that? And, you know, I don't know, but she figured it out. And she always can figure out where to find all her stuff on YouTube mm-hmm. that she likes to watch. And I, I go, I can never find it, but she always seems to be able to, to figure it out. So yes, I think, you know, I, yeah, you've given me a lot to think about, like just to think at it like differently and how we can work with the skills that Ainsley has. Like, and, and our listeners can think about that is like, focus on the skills that your child has. Don't think that they're deficient. I don't want to say that really, I don't mean it like that, but like what, don't think of the skills that they don't have, but think of what they do have and work with that. And work from there. Absolutely. Absolutely,
2: because when we think about two real life skills, you know, in the real world, how many people sit down and write things by hand? Not many. Mm -hmm. So is it that, you know, we've taught it with fidelity, we've tried everything. Yes, we are still going to work on it in the backgrounds and in private OT, but as it comes to academics, I'm going to completely remove that barrier of writing. And I'm going to say, assistive technology is fine and okay. You know, is telling time the sword I'm going to die on. No, because then everyone else is moving on Mm -hmm. and we're building that gap instead of moving on to new content. You know, so it's, it's, it is complicated and it's questioning and it goes against what we learn, how we learn school. Um, But it's like that quote, you know, the most dangerous thing we can say is because we've always done it this way.
0: Yeah. You know, and hadn't really ever, stop to think about it that you're right we don't write a lot you know like maybe in 10 years I mean I don't know but maybe let's just say in 10 years most people are just everything is done through the computer yeah I had you know I hadn't really sat down to think about that but yes that's it's true I mean I do think it's a valuable skill and I would like Mm -hmm. her to be able to you know to write but it's yeah it's not really as you said the the sword to die on so I hadn't I hadn't really sat down and thought about that so thank you <laughs> yeah.
2: that's what I do I feel like I give people more things to think about than answers
0: so. but but it's true right like we all want our kids to be able to write our name or write a short story or whatever but why can't they just type it out like Ainsley as she showed her EA that she could spell all these words. Like mm-hmm. and I said, like, how are you doing it? She goes, Well, we're doing it on her iPad, like on her touch chat. And I think they yeah. also had some like loose letters or whatever. You know, so there's different ways to do it. You know, mm-hmm. she didn't actually have to to write it out. You know, she can right. participate in a spelling test. If I have the words we could practice and mm-hmm. she can participate and she could do it on her on her touch chat.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, so as we've been talking, like, and as I said, we have like a resource teacher. I don't really know what it, how it works down in the States. I'm, I'm sure it's something somewhat similar, <laughs> but who's really responsible for providing the adapted curriculum? Because is it the teacher or is it the resource teacher? Cause in our school, I think there's only one and there's, it's a school of 500 students. I don't know how many kids have an IEP there. Uh, you know, I would assume a lot if there's 500 kids. So who ultimately should be providing that adapted curriculum? Because, you know, I have not once ever had anything come home that was modified for Ainsley to work on. You know, would I get like the sheet that, you know, she's got to do whatever it is, this the story next week. Well, you know what? I end up having to write it. I end up having to do it kind of for her because she can't do that. Mm -hmm. And it would just frustrate me to no level uh, to no end because this is, what's the point? Like, I, I don't need to be doing it. Ainsley needs to learn but nothing would ever come home adapted Mm -hmm. or modified. And it, it frustrated me. I'm thinking, well, who do I talk to about that? Well, I'm going to give you two different
2: answers. First, Um, first, the kind of practical, legal, although I'm not a lawyer, legally answer, which is ultimately the special educator, the resource teacher, you know, whoever is responsible in that child's case on the IEP. But we're actually reading in in the class I'm teaching, uh, Scott Danforth's book, Becoming a Great Inclusive Educator. And in there, it says, and I may be misquoting, but It alludes to, you know, all students are general education students and all teachers teach every student. So it ultimately should be the responsibility of of the child's teacher. And there should be a plan in place between the general education teacher and the special education teacher of who is modifying what when. Because when you only have one resource teacher for a school of 500, there's not going to be the capability to modify for every single student every single day. Just the reality is that. Mm -hmm. So looking at where can general education teachers step in, step up and modify and accommodate? And then where are times that we need the aid of a special education teacher? Now I would say, if it is in your child's IEP, then that's what needs to be happening. Every single thing needs to be accommodated and modified. Ultimately, who's responsible for that? Well, the special education teacher but that's not to say that general education teachers are off the hook. Mm-hmm. And in my perfect inclusive world, we're all together accommodating and modifying. Um, when I say all except for the parents, parents, this is not your job. And I hear this all the time. Well, I have to accommodate and modify. Well, you know, mm-hmm. this is not your job. And I think we, it's where we see caregiver burnout because from the beginning, you're taking on jobs that are simply not yours. Mm-hmm. So it's, it also does a disservice to our teachers to give them that out of now not being able to be more flexible in their thinking about education about how do I better accommodate and modify my lessons and, you know, taking ownership of the student. Um, you know, the first line of defense should be that general education teacher and only if they're coming up to a roadblock. do they say, Okay, you know I need to tap you in. If you're in a co-taught class, you know together as you're planning you should be accommodating and modifying. So it's a hard, it's a hard thing, but you know, I ask that question at IEPs all the time, who is responsible for this? Who is going to be accommodating and modifying and making sure that is reflected in the IEP?
0: Okay, I, yes, and I will definitely be asking that when we have our IEP, because I, I kind of felt like a lot of things fell to her EA, which mm-hmm. I didn't feel was her responsibility.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, and you'll you'll notice in my response, I
0: didn't say EAs
2: yeah. pair of one to ones, because they're they do not have the training nor the place to modify certainly work. Now, they should be a partner involved in the process of modifying and accommodating, but should not be left alone to do that, because there's a reason why, at least in the states, we require teachers, at least in New York State, to have a master's degree. You know, so then to say, so we so devalue kids that with disabilities that you don't need a master's degree now, but for every other kid they do. Um, So no, it is not on the EA. Now the EA's paras one-to-one should have a plethora of tools to say in the moment, here's how I'm going to accommodate, Mm -hmm. but certainly not modifying and prioritizing the curriculum because that's also how we get our students working kind of way out here in left field while everyone else is over there. Because it's it's by best guess and best intentions of our EAs, paras, and one-to-ones. But ultimately, we leave them to flounder. Mm-hmm. So we need to ensure that there is planning time with all gen ed special educator and if there's EAs, paras, one-to-ones, all involved. Because sometimes our paras come up with the best modifications and accommodations, but they have to be overseen by a special educator to make sure we're still on the right track.
0: Yes, and- I agree with that. And, and Ronnie, who was Ainsley's EA up till this past, up until this year, you know, I think she had lots of great ideas and, you know, and sometimes I think, you know, cause she's been at this for a while and, you know, and I, and yes, and I believe she's worked with some, some yes, yeah, she has worked with other kids with Down syndrome, so she gets them, you know? And so I think oftentimes it kind of, they just kind of let it fall on her. to do that. And I I didn't really think that was fair. And like you said, it's not her job to do that. And she's
2: certainly not being paid for it. Yeah. And, you know, I would love to see a path for, you know, we have such a teacher shortage, especially special education teachers. I would love to see a path for EAs and paras and one-to-ones who have been in this and have a plethora of knowledge and easier path to teacher certification. You know, how can we utilize those we already have in the field? Um, but I also want to honor that for, I don't know what they get paid in Canada, but certainly here in the U S they're not any means getting paid for that. And that is not fair to them.
0: Well, I'm pretty sure it's the same here as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh gosh. It's, it's hard. Like it's hard, you know, for the parents, like, I like, guess I said earlier, like advocating it's, it's hard work. You know, I, I was just recently talking just last night, actually, with another mom whose daughter has down syndrome and is entering kindergarten. And there's one aide in the whole class. She doesn't have a one-on-one and she's a runner. And so the mother is terrified that she is going to take off. And she said, like, how do I know if she's gets one? I said, well, here it's based, like you have a designation and i said i'm sure with her having down syndrome she has one and that would include her having a Mm one-to-one aid and you know and i told her you need to talk to the principal because obviously safety is paramount Mm -hmm. but you know the fact that the teacher didn't seem to know anything and you know she's having to meet with the principal we were week into school it's the first full week Mm -hmm. you know it's a little terrifying for her this is her first child going to school Mm -hmm you know, and I don't know, it's just, it's overwhelming, but you know, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I gave her the few tips that I had about talking Mm -hmm. to the principal and so on, but it's, it's hard because a lot of times it's out of parents' comfort zone to Mm -hmm. to go and I don't want to say confront the principal, but you know, because you're having to demand certain things, like you're having to demand the support. You know, we had a lot of pushback when Ainsley entered into kindergarten because she was uh, not a great walker. She was a really late walker and they wanted her to use a walker. And I said, she doesn't need the walker, Mm -hmm. you know, and they wouldn't let her go full time until she had the walker and, you know, and the school board got involved and everything. And eventually, you know, she didn't need the walker, but you know, all those things, but like I had to confront the principal about that, you know, whereas other parents I've heard stories where they, the child, there's a one little boy in a different, uh school same district and he so at the time had the same school physio and he i've seen videos of him he goes to our swim physio i see him walking around videos of him walking around the mall going up and down the escalator no problems better walker than ainsley but because he has a seizure disorder they've put him in a wheelchair with a hockey helmet on and our uh, support workers daughter who was 12 at the time says I can tell when he's about to have a seizure he has a one-on-one eight I'm sure they could figure out when he's going to have a seizure but you know and I said does the mom know this that he's just Uh sitting there in a wheelchair Uh you know because now his walking isn't as good because he's not doing it and her response was I I don't want him to be seen as a problem yeah and and I hear that
2: and you know I sometimes say, Chris, so I'm not a parent. So I will never say I know what it's like, but I will say I've seen this through and play out many a times. And it's one of those things that we have to say, am I going to pay now and be, you know, quote unquote, that parent, put up the fight and get my child what they need? Or am I going to pay later when their skills regress, when they're do, do not reach their full potential when they we have no option except a group home because there's no independent skills there um you know what advocating for one's needs and your child's needs your friend's needs is not being a burden um it is not being a problem you know we would never make a child who needs insulin to feel like they are a problem and so we should never feel that a child who needs a one-on-one or modified curriculum or any additional supports be, be a burden. And we do these things, you know, to keep kids safe and we end up hurting them even more. Mm-hmm. This idea of the dignity of risk. But I would take that one step further and say, I don't just want kids to take risks. I want kids to fail. I want them to say, this is hard or I did it wrong. And we're gonna learn from that. And so putting you know him in a wheelchair with a helmet when it's not needed is going to hurt him. Mm-hmm. At least from from my vantage point, from what I'm seeing, because the worst calls I get here in the US, you can stay in school till you're 21, are calls from parents of kids who are 19, 20, 21 years old who were segregated their whole life and say, I made a mistake. I think I made a mistake, not fighting for this, because now we're out of time. And it's heartbreaking because yeah. what can you do? And, and, you know, I, I always comfort with the quote, you know, you do, do, d- uh, do with the knowledge you have. And once you know better, do better. Well, now we know better as parents, as educators, as school administrators, the idea that we have a one size fits all support for kids with seizure disorders is ridiculous. When we have an entire spectrum of, of seizure disorders, that is, many of which would not need a wheelchair nor a helmet some of which you do and that's okay but Mm -hmm. to just apply that to everyone is is unacceptable
0: yeah I I totally agree when you know better you do better and 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 like you said like yeah that just breaks my heart hearing you know when these kids are at the end of their school life and parents are going what do I do now Mm -hmm. Because like you said, it's kind of too late. And yeah, which is scary. It's that's really scary. And, you know, and that's why we have to, to really advocate for our kids. And, oh, gosh, you know, I know we could just talk forever about this. It's, it's, it's a really hard topic. And but it's such an important topic. You know, Like how I'm in Canada and, you know, a lot of our listeners are in the States, but how can people pretty much anywhere? Like, how can they find like an advocate like you, like how, like Amanda found you and Mm -hmm. you kind of went to bat with her Mm -hmm. for the whole bus situation. And yeah, like what do parents do? Well, I would say my first thing is always bring an advocate, whether that is
2: your neighbor next door who knows nothing about special education. Down syndrome to a highly trained, highly skilled advocate like, hopefully myself. I could say that about hopefully, um, so. <laughs> and because you want to set the precedent that this breaking advocate is not adversarial. It is not, you know, contentious. It is just the norm to be expected because these IEP meetings are intense things. They're often long. They're emotional. They are things that having an extra set of ears can never hurt. Mm-hmm. So the, I will always sit back and say, bring someone. I don't care who it is, bring someone else who's not a parent or the guardian. Your local Down syndrome group, so I'll say in Canada, your local Down syndrome groups hopefully can point you. I know a few folks in Canada that I can refer to. Um, I serve sort of, now that I'm doing you know, my PhD, I do have an LLC uh, called Team Inclusion where we do consult. I have a team of folks who work with me. Um all on low incidence disabilities who you know advocate across the country. Now, we're only a team of four, so we can only do so much. So we say, you know contact if you're in the states, contact us if we have capacity to help, We will help. If not, we will. I have local advocates around the country that
0: I work with and that I trust um, to 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 help. And that's team inclusion. Is that what? Team inclusion? Yes. okay. so do you have a website or? We don't yet. We're all getting PhD, so we're a little we're a little busy.
2: Yeah. Um. But you can find find me on Facebook. Um, just Sarah
0: Joe. Yeah. And we will we will link you to the to our team. Okay, that's fantastic. And we'll put the links in our show notes and and all that, oh. so that you know if people. You know because like i said it's that time of year where you're mm-hmm. going into ieps and the start of school and and just like uh, amanda needed someone to to go to bat with her so mm-hmm. which is so fantastic i i was so i was so angry when she first you know posted about what was going on but i was really happy to see how how things turned out so yeah. you know you just you gotta just fight yeah. that fight so that's and- wonderful.
2: And I will say in terms of equity, because that's such a central part of, of, I think it's so important, you know, we never, team inclusion never turns away folks for inability to pay. So whether that's, we need to work pro bono, or we need to find someone to work pro bono, um, you know, most of the folks who use advocates are white, middle, upper class. So how do we ensure that everybody is getting the same support? Mm -hmm. Um, So I I just want to put in that plug, that plug as
0: well. That's so wonderful to hear like that's because I'm sure a lot of people think, well, you know, there's no way I can afford one. But and like the mom that I was telling about the daughter in kindergarten, I said, don't go to the IEP alone. She goes, what do you mean? I said, take somebody with Mm -hmm. you, because often they try to. I want to say steamroll like I don't know, I don't think it's necessarily intentional, but. You know, they always think they know what's right, but you're the one who knows your child best and you yeah. think, and you know, what's best for your child. So, you know, but if you have someone else there who can kind of just have your back, mm-hmm. it, it certainly helps. And and I've done that too, because they, they are very stressful at times and yeah. they can be challenging and you know, and you just, you want to have people who are on your side, on your team who mm-hmm. are going to bat, go to bat for your child. So, right. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate your time, Sarah Jo. I know you're so busy like you said working on your PhD. And oh yeah, one other question I had, are you do you still keep in touch with your friend with Down syndrome?
2: I do. Yes. And yes. how's she doing? You know, she she is doing okay. I think covid covid's been hard. Um mm-hmm. I think for a lot of folks and and admittedly, she kind of fell off that cliff we see, you know, post K12. Um which she's you know doing doing okay.
0: Oh, I'm glad to hear that. That's awesome. And she's got a good person in her corner in you. So that's that's wonderful. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So like you said we could find you on on Facebook and so if people have any kind of questions uh you're open to people contacting you. Yep. Okay. Well, absolutely. Oh, that's so wonderful and you know it's it's so nice to know that we you know, cause sometimes you don't know where to turn. You don't know where to find people like yourself. You know, I, I, before Amanda, I wouldn't have known either. Like I, I, I don't know. Right. You know, you just start talking to people and sometimes somebody knows somebody who knows somebody. So that's really fantastic. So I just really want to thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge and, and information and your passion about inclusion. And of course, Down syndrome. <laughs> You know, and I, oh you're, yeah, you're very welcome. I just, I feel like we're just sort of at the tip of the iceberg that there's just so much more to talk about. And, you know, perhaps we can have you on again later to maybe talk about IEPs or more about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was, it was an absolute honor to be here. And I, I,
2: you know, hope, hope folks can learn just a little bit from this. And, you know, I'm always like, said, I'm always here, um, for whatever folks need. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very, you can tell very passionate about inclusive ed and, you know, we just want to make inclusive it happen. That's
0: wonderful. I, yeah, I love it. And, and thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank
2: you.
1: Well, Mary, that was very enlightening.
0: Indeed. I would say so. I learned a lot from her.
1: Me too. And so Sarah Jo is studying for her PhD mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this? Yes. It's rather, you know, I, I didn't know that you could get a PhD in inclusion.
0: Well, I'm sure it's you know, a little bit more involved, you know, but that's her passion. And so now she's pursuing higher education and, you know, she's, I think a really sought after advocate and, you know, an inclusion advocate and, you know, she's obviously a great speaker. So she's, and like she said, she, they won't turn anybody away. So if you're having issues, like go to her, see what she can do for you.
1: Well, I like that her approach is more educational mm-hmm. than uh, than an iron fist. You know, rather than demanding inclusion, she's reaching out and asking people about what they know about inclusion and educating people about inclusion and the various forms of inclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and she's obviously very knowledgeable about it, you know. And like I said, sometimes there's things you hadn't thought about. and Oh, yeah.
1: I, I spent some a few minutes after when I was listening to the interview, I was going, I hadn't thought of that one.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I think it's a really important episode. I thought it would be great to have her on, especially as we're just kind of heading back to school and, you know, we'll be heading into IEP soon. And, you know, I'm already reading about parents whose kids are going into kindergarten who are having issues, you know, just like me and Ainsley had our issues and, and I had to bring people to the table to help me to fight those issues and to have Ainsley included like alongside with her peers so yeah and because it can be very daunting and intimidating you know and so you need someone in your corner who who knows their stuff and is willing to step up for you
1: well I vote for Sarah Jo to come back at some point and have another conversation about this
0: oh I'm sure she would love to so I'm sure that would be awesome
1: Okay, so that's it for episode 64.
0: Can you believe it? Yeah, I know. Um, Pretty exciting.
1: So why don't you walk us out of this one?
0: Alrighty. Thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories. What's going on in your life? What's important to you? You can email me at info at t21mom.com or find me on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Trisomy 21 Mama. And it would also mean a lot if you would subscribe and leave a review so we can be more searchable to others in the Down syndrome community. Keep on loving on your rocking kiddos, and we will see you next time. See you, Mary. Bye, Ron.